You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 87, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. Now, before we get to the episode, I have just a little bit of show business. I want to say thank you once more to all of the people who support the show. And by support the show, I mean monetarily. The systems, services, and tools that it takes to operate a podcast over the long haul are kind of expensive, and what your contributions mean is that I don't have to cover all the expenses out of my pocket. And as a retiree on a fixed income, I really appreciate that. And what it also means, and maybe more importantly, is that there are no commercials. So there are no breaks in the show where I come in and tell you about uh, boutique dog food or male enhancement products or, heaven forbid, cryptocurrency. Did I mention I'm grateful? That This leaves me free to concentrate my time and efforts on the show without the distraction of commerce, and that's huge for me. Uh, and in case you're wondering, my level of effort right now is about two days a week, uh, more or less. So, Okay, let's get to the show. Once again, Herb Science Sunday returns, and we are graced with the presence of Dr. Alex Crone. So this is our seventh installment of Herb Science Sunday, by the way, and Alex and I have two interesting publications to discuss along with a little taxonomic nomenclature at the end. So let's get to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And once again, we have another edition of Herp Science Sunday with Dr. Alex Crone. Alex, it's good to see you and talk to you again. I'm glad to be back, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. Uh, I think we did. Uh, we released two shows back-to-back in January. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while and it's been it's been a busy time. So I'm glad to be back. Yeah, you know, you've got lots of going on. You've got a, a family and a new job and lots of things going on. So uh, glad we could finally get together again. Me too. So uh, we have a couple a couple of things we want to talk about uh, today, and the first uh, we have a couple of papers we want to talk about. Let me rephrase that and. Uh, one is a, a fairly short paper, and I think we'll, we we should do the, the short one first. Uh, it, short, but nonetheless very interesting. Uh, and uh, some might call it short and sweet, if you will. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, let us dip our beaks into it and find out what the what the joke is all about. Uh, the title of the paper is "Between Fruits, Flowers, and Nectar." The Extraordinary Diet of the Frog, Xenohyla Truncata. And this is uh, Carlos Enrique de Oliveira Noguera et al. There's a bunch of co-authors on here. And uh, this is uh, published in uh, uh, Food Webs, the journal Food Webs. And uh, this came out, uh, I believe, last year. And... Um, I guess the long and short of it is that uh, it describes a frog that more or less could be described as an active pollinator. Is that your take on this? Yeah. Yeah. They, um, 
they found frogs doing a number of bizarre things that are not really known from amphibians, period. Um, and, and yeah, the authors surmise that this could be uh, a frog acting as a pollinator, which is kind of uh, pretty extraordinary for amphibian kind. We say extraordinary, but I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, Alex, on my uh, long drive to cross country, that uh, why not and why, why only now are we finding these? Because it seems flowers have been along, around since the dinosaurs and frogs have been a lo- around a lot longer. Uh, why are we only now finding uh, a potential pollinator? Yeah, I don't. I'm, I don't know. I, I guess I would ask, like, what's in it for the frog? And um, we know that for insects and birds, at least, the two probably most common pollinators, um, they get this nectar, this, like, energy-rich food source or the pollen. Um, and then they just happen to also transfer pollen from flower to flower. And I think given that probably the ancestor of all amphibians was carnivorous. And so they would probably want something more protein rich or, or something closer to their usual diet. Um, and that's what's pretty extraordinary about this. Um, in this paper, they, they cite that this is the only, only the second species of frog of adult frog, I should say, to feed on vegetative matter. Um, which I found really surprising as well. I kind of figured, I don't know if there was some rotting, like delicious looking piece of fruit or vegetable that like a big frog, like a bullfrog or one of the dichroglossids in Asia would like, would, would eat that. Um, but that's not, that's not true. They're, they're pretty strict carnivores. Um, and so there was one other frog in India, Euphlictus hexadactyla, um, which is a pretty common like bullfrog, like frog in um, in India that also eats uh, vegetative matter, but yeah, it was it was pretty astounding to me that this was only the second case ever of an adult frog doing that. Tadpoles, yeah, we know do that eat eat vegetative matter, don't have to be carnivorous, um, but adult frogs, it it's really rare. Well, I you know there's there's the idea of accidental uh, pollination, right? Uh, frog jumps from uh, one uh, one bush, flowering bush, gets pollen on it, jumps to a neighboring one a meter away, and maybe some pollination happens. Um, but this is this seems to be an intentional uh, intentional on part of the plant. It's it's producing a a substance that for some reason the frog uh, finds palatable and eats it. And as you say, it's kind of astounding to think of frogs as eating of uh, uh, salad <laughs> or yeah. food, if you will. Uh, just, you know, like you said, Agreed. Uh, I guess the euphlictus, I don't know much about that and why it can, cons- uh, what kind of me- vegetable matter it consumes. But this, uh, I guess the other part of that is if, if you want, if, if there's going to be a frog pollinator, it needs to be a tree frog. It needs to be a frog that spends time off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And the authors go, I would love to talk more, to the authors about what was kind of left out of this paper, but um, they kind of hint that the flower. So these frogs were basically observed from like 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Um, 
at night and the the authors took photos and videos of them interacting with this brazilian milk tree in the um in the brazilian atlantic forest outside of sao paulo and they um they go as far in this paper to say that the flowers of the milk tree are kind of open in such a way to make it really easy for the frogs to to get in and so they observed frogs head first in the flowers, just sitting there for up to 15 minutes at a time, just drinking nectar. And kind of when they came out, they had pollen grains stuck to them. And um, they go as far to say as like the flower, the flower seemed really perfect for the frogs. I won't say that they were suggesting like a kind of co-adaptation or co-evolution, um, but, but they seem like this was a really good match for the frogs that the frog fit really well inside to get nectar and then happened to, to hit the stigmas as, as they came out or sorry, the anthers as they came out and, and got a bunch of, uh, uh, pollen on them. Yeah. And, and in the, in the world of flowers, you have, um, flowers that are sort of, uh, pollinated by any, any old flying thing. Uh, so they have, uh, you know they're they're not specialized in their shape or anything, and then you have other flowers that are, have single or a very narrow niche of pollinators, such things that are pollinated by bats or hummingbirds or uh, moths with particular mouth parts and things like that. So there's no end to those uh, things in 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 the plant kingdom. Uh, but the idea that the, the frog fits in the plant is is kind of interesting because it's like, well, what other pollen what other pollinators uh, meet that requirement? And I, you know, it seems rather specialized, but I, I could just be speculating because I, I don't really don't have the answer to this. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were suggesting that I, I guess my takeaway from this, I don't know much about this Brazilian um, milk tree, milk fruit tree. Um, and it, and it seems pretty range restricted there in the Atlantic forest, but they were saying that other um, species within this genus of milk trees are have a really diverse array of pollinators, from bats to birds to insects, and um, they they just kind of add this frog to the list of potential um, pollinators. And I'll say as well that like I, for all of our field herpers out there, um, this is a cool. This is a really astounding natural history observation that it sounds like just a group of these authors happened to observe one night. They saw a bunch of these frogs hanging out on uh, uh, this flowering tree and they sat there and watched and documented as this really interesting natural history observation occurred. So somebody went, um, somebody just went, Hey, wait a minute. Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. And they they took some really beautiful photos. Like if we can, I don't know if you want to put this in the show notes or if if people listening want to find the paper and and check it out. The photos are just beautiful, really documenting um, these frogs in their flowers. It's it's really cool. Yeah, and I'll, I'll post some uh, material in the show notes so people can can check it out. Uh, and yeah, they did a good job with that uh, aspect of it. Is uh, clearly get kind of get the message of what's happening here. Yeah. And um it's it's it should be said too that the 
that is the not the sole source of of food for the frog. The frog is just a it's a it's a tree frog, so it's uh, hopping around eating uh, any moving thing that's smaller than it is uh, as well. That's right. But uh, the flower has uh, seen fit to produce a a nectar that uh, the frog likes and probably gets some benefit from. There's probably some energy benefit to whatever this substance is. And I, I assume it is some sort of just a sweet nectar of some sort. That would be my guess too. And whether this was like opportunistic and the frog just like was like, oh, what's this? I'm going to drink it. and Or maybe it was really thirsty um, or whether this is something that regularly happens and is really important for the tree and the frog. We don't really know, but but it's a cool observation nonetheless. I think too what I what it, what I wondered is are there other other instances of this is this the only tree the frog pollinates or are there others and what are we what are we missing out there this can this really be the only frog that that pollinates a flower I I totally agree and I think we have a new mission for the so much pingle listeners. Like, <laughs> go out and follow frogs around, especially frogs that are around flowers often. Like, I I agree with you, Mike, that tree frogs in the tropics, where there's lots of flowering trees and vines, and lots of frogs in the trees and vines, would be a really good candidate for this. But it seems, um, I, I agree. I feel like we've got to be missing something here, and this is probably a more common phenomenon than uh, than we know about. But these, it, it seems from reading this paper that this is really unique. Like only two species in all of um, of amphibian kind, and that's like that's like eight thousand species now. I think we're up to like that's yeah, that's a lot. Um, I agree. There, there's got to be more out there. Yeah, somebody needs to find. Well, this we've talked about this on on the show, not necessarily on Herb Science Sunday so much, but we've talked about this on the show. The idea of um, not necessarily, you know, uh, jumping in and getting that photo, or you know, picking up the snake or whatever. Just kind of hanging back and see what is going on. What's the snake doing? What's uh, what natural history observations you can make just by kind of hanging back? So, absolutely. Uh, yeah, couldn't uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think you really end up with a much more rewarding experience when when you do that. And like, sure, you get a rewarding experience when you grab the thing and and take a photo, but it becomes much deeper and much more fulfilling when you can when you can see the snake or frog or whatever going about its daily life. And and you can also understand the different pace of life at which these animals operate, which I think is really interesting and fun as well. Yeah. It's a much deeper experience, isn't it? Uh, and it, it reminds me too, I'll, I'll get just, this is sort of a side note, but um, back in 2013, uh, a particular night in Peru, uh, Matt Cage and I find our first Bushmaster. And uh, about two minutes before we find our first Bushmaster on the trail, uh, I found a, a, a tree stump a tree that's kind of broken off about waist height and there the stump had water in it and there were a bunch of tadpoles in there. Cool. Pretty common. But about two feet above that on a, a branch, 
was uh, an adult bromeliad frog. It was it happens to be uh, Osteocephalus uh, planiceps, a flat-headed bromeliad frog. It was just sitting there looking down at that. So, I, you know, at the moment it was like, huh, I wonder if it's, you know, thinking about eating those those tadpoles or what is it, you know, why is it in juxtaposed to tadpoles like that? And, and of course, after the excitement of the uh, Bushmaster that kind of went out of my head until a few years later when I saw the same scenario again. And so now I'm thinking, again, is this is the frog there to predate the tadpoles or is the frog there to watch over the tadpoles? And I've, I've actually seen it again since. But uh, at this point, I don't, you know, I, I'm kind of busy, um, you know, walking through the forest with people, helping them see their Bushmasters and whatnot. So I don't really have time to to devote to this, but I'm just wondering what's really going on there. And it, it, it took one observation, and, and now every time I see it, I, I think about it in a different way. I wonder what's what's happening, and uh, maybe somebody can do a more in-depth study of that at some point. Yeah, that's definitely worth worth sitting and watching and uh and and noting for sure like I, yeah i wonder bromeliad frogs lay their eggs or well i guess they're probably a hylid so probably eggs in bromeliads then maybe it was using this stump hole and those are its tadpoles and not um and and not some potential prey item like right. yeah there's all sorts of cool observations that could happen at that yeah. And, and it requires stuff. somebody to do to dig in because I don't I don't know how to identify the tadpoles and I don't know if and if there's a written description of the that species tadpoles or not either so there's a lot of of uh, backstory that has to be filled in so I, right. I'm really not in the position position to do that but it's it's cool when you notice something and and you just not interfere and and maybe you're seeing something unique maybe you're not so I agree. Definitely. I just kind of bring that up to uh, illustrate a point. Um, so I wonder, to, I don't know, we, we really haven't been able to, t to talk to the authors of this paper, but I, I don't know if they're doing any more follow-up work with this uh, species or not. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if other pollinators turn up or if more information turns up on this particular species. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like just hanging out by that one tree or or following that tree for like a flowering season to see what happens would be would be really cool they they didn't actually document like that frog taking the pollen from that flower and bringing it to another flower which would like complete the pollination um event but but the potential is there and yeah, it would be really cool to to connect that series and see how often it happens now that now that they know where it's happening. We, I would I would call it strong evidence. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I would say yeah. We we don't have um, it's definitely not conclusive yet, but but yeah, this is strong evidence pointing towards the ability for a frog to pollinate this milk tree. And you refer to it as astounding. Um, um, uh, that's that. Those are strong words, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was impressed. I I was um when I this certainly made its uh um made its way around the internet um in in terms of headlines. They were they were yeah links from uh, all sorts of of outlets, including the New York Times and others. And um, I was impressed when when I saw that happen. 
Um, and then a little bit uh, disappointed or like um, bummed that they they didn't actually witness the pollination happening. It was just a frog with pollen on its back. But I mean, the the idea that this is only the second species of frog known to feed on vegetative matter, that they were eating the flowers, they were drinking the nectar, and then that they had pollen on them. Yeah, I was I was astounded. That was yeah. like, okay, that that is pretty cool nonetheless. Just when you think you got it figured out. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it isn't it amazing? And like frogs are really good at this. When you think you understand how a frog reproduces, boom, you learn about these direct developing frogs that just skip the eggs altogether. And like just when you thought you understood how tadpoles work, you Finally, you're, you learn about these like upward facing tadpoles that drink from stuff on the surface. And like, there's just so many weird ways to be a frog in yeah. this world. And um, that is continually amazing. Yeah. And, and then you have within the same species, you have different types of tadpoles, depending on the, the, the conditions or the place where the tad, where the eggs are laid. I'm not quite sure how all that works, but you have some yeah. uh, that are are carnivorous and some that basic some tadpoles that basically just end up being food. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. You're referring to the, the spade feet, spade foot tadpoles there. And yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing how much even yeah variation there is within a species. So all that stuff we did when we were a kid looking at puddles and poking frogs with sticks in the creek and whatnot, it, it, that's very valuable th- <laughs> it's very valuable, and uh, we we don't do as, enough of that, apparently. I mean, I would argue that most field herpers are probably those kids that just kept doing that all the way into adulthood, <laughs> and I think that's a great thing. I think like this paper is evidence that you keep doing that long enough and in the right places, you will see something completely novel, and you can tell people about it. Probably helps to have kind of a biological bent in your thinking too, because then because there's that, hey, wait a minute moment that had to have occurred with this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where, yeah, oh, maybe some people would have just been like, oh, look, there's a frog on the flower, that's cute. But then someone else is like, wait, actually on the flower, like that's kind of weird. Hold on, let's stop and and take a longer look here. Yeah, and then it's you know consuming. It's consuming some vegetable material. It just seems like that's a you know, one step after the next after the next. Uh, exactly, sort of mind blowing yeah. things going on. Yeah, pretty impressive. <laughs> okay, uh, do you have anything else to to cover in this paper? No, I I don't. Um, but I would encourage anyone listening to go check out those photos because they are they are stunning and pretty impressive and. Um, and yeah, get out there and try to find frogs, more frogs on flowers. Let's see if this is, um, as rare as we currently think it is. Well, it's certainly going to sit there in the back of my mind when I'm out in, in places where, you know, tree frogs and, and flowering plants occur. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be some obscure place either. I mean, it could be happening. I don't know. Could be happening in your neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, surely green tree frogs out here are right by flowers that are big enough for them to pollinate. And so I I will be keeping a, a better, a closer eye out too. All right. Very good. Between you and I, we got this covered. Cool. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on. We have a, another paper here. Uh, and this is sort of the, the bigger 
uh, I don't want to say bigger paper, but it's sort of the one that has more uh, bits and pieces and parts, moving parts to it. Uh, the title of the paper is Aggregation and Social Interaction in Garter Snakes, Thamnophis Sertalis Sertalis. Uh, this is uh, Morgan Skinner and Noah Miller. Uh, and this was published uh, a couple years ago, three years ago to be exact, I think, in uh, Behavioral Ecology and Social Biology. So you want to talk about this paper? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think I found this one and I'm not sure how I came across it. Um, I usually try to like go to the most recent issues of journals and all that, but it was, it was just so interesting that I was like, okay, I think, I think we should talk about this. And so I'll preface this by saying that I definitely grew up and was educated in a time when, um, maybe from my own ignorance, but um, maybe from society's perspective generally, not much was known about snake sociality. And um, snakes were thought, I, I grew up kind of learning and thinking that snakes are kind of automatons and just like all they do is like breed, 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 eat, 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 sleep, sleep, sleep. And, and that's it. That's all they do. Um, and so this was a, a really cool paper that kind of summarized how much more complex it is than all of that and how there are there is serious mounting evidence that that snakes are social creatures that have preferences that have friends that um are much more uh connected than um than than i was led to believe and so for that reason i thought this was a, a cool paper for us to talk about okay i think the set this is a um work that was actually done in a laboratory uh, I'm not sure what gave them the idea to, to go down this rabbit hole, but they, the idea is to set up some groups of snakes and observe them in the laboratory. And I, I kind of like what they did. They, um, they got a hold of some, uh, gravid female Eastern garter snakes. And I think these are Canadian snakes, by the way, I think they're from up in, uh, Eastern Canada. Yep. Uh, and, uh, Wait, held on to them until they uh, gave birth to their, to their young, and then the the litters were split into equal sized groups, and then they had they had three groups from three gravid garters, and then they also I think purchased uh, some uh, 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 neonate garters from, that was from another female. They all that, those all came from the same female, but it came through a like an animal dealer. So they had four groups of snakes of young snakes that were each from a different parent. And so they kind of set those up into four different groups. And do you want to take it from there? Sure. Yeah, you got it. Um, and yeah, they basically put them, so they kept them in these related groups. So they're kind of, by doing that, they're getting, everyone is kind of equally related to each other. They're all siblings and they can kind of get around that idea that maybe they're hanging out or are not hanging out because of some sort of uh, familial relation that they don't know about. Now they know everyone's relation and they basically put um, everyone, they put one group at a time in um, a large tank with access to a heating gradient and water and basically had four shelters um, that, uh, that the snakes could go into and hide and more effectively thermoregulate. And um, the, the snakes were well fed, so they don't believe that this was um, 
influenced by by hunger or desire for for more food um and they just wanted to see how these snakes aggregated in these four shelters did they do it in a predictable way did they do it um based on some individual trait uh and and yeah what happened and so with these four groups of snakes they put them in a place in the uh enclosure and then went to see and then tracked using a video camera where all the snakes went. And then they periodically checked, or I guess they marked the snakes on the back of their head so they could be tracked um, by this video camera. And periodically they would go and lift up all of the four shelters and see who's hanging out with whom. Um, and then just to see, to really um, experimentally test whether these are random associations or not, they they mixed up those groups too. So they would take all of the snakes and release them in the center or take them and put them under a different shelter or put them under a random shelter um, to see if they reformed those groups. And yeah, it, it's it's a neat little experiment in the lab to basically test whether and why, potentially why um, snakes associate the way that they do. Yeah, so you... Um... You mark the, you mark them with nail polish so you can identify them on the video camera. Uh, you uh, every I think it was a couple times a day they would come in and kind of uh, rearrange everything so the snakes had no choice but to if the snakes wanted to uh, um, go into a hide they had no choice but to find a hide to go into and so you would think that uh, if there's no social inter interaction at all that would be a sort of a random thing. And you would have, uh, you know, a bunch of snakes in one or, or, or most of the snakes in one or something. You would see some kind of random pattern to it. Uh, but that's not really what they found. No, not at all. Yeah, these were um, purposeful. The, the snakes basically had repeated interactions with similar individuals that they sought out explicitly. So even if you... Uh, perturb them, as they call it, mix them all up. They would go back to the same individuals that that they seemed to to like. And in fact, snakes preferred areas with larger groups of individuals. And I thought that was really fascinating. As they, but there's kind of this like knock-on effect that as uh, one, as more and more snakes start aggregating under one of these shelters, that attracts more and more snakes. And they didn't really um, hypothesize why that might be, but I think we can we can guess. Like it, it's interesting to think, like maybe they like it. Maybe there's some thermal benefit or other benefit about being in these large groups, or maybe they have some ability to recognize that, like, hey, all these guys think it's safe. Like, I bet it's pretty safe in there. Like, I'm gonna go in there too. I. They didn't hypothesize, and that's just my kind of conjecture. But but it is interesting that basically more snakes begets more snakes, at least in these garter snakes. Well, I, I've seen a, a couple of popular articles about this this process or what what was happening. You know, it's like oh, it was I think one of the titles was Snake Buddies and things like that. Uh, but I, I'm not sure if that can be fairly characterized as. Oh, there's Joe. He's my friend. I'm gonna go hang out with him. I'm not not sure we're we're at that level where it's some sort of oh, I I recognize this particular snake and he is my friend, so I'm gonna stay here with him. I mean, we can't really say that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I agree. Like certainly the associations are non-random and they preferentially hang out with individuals. Yeah, whether it's because like they really get along and are are friends, like I I don't know if we can say that yet, but um but yeah, like they're non-random associations and I I preferentially hang out with Mike Pingleton often because <laughs> I like him for certain reasons and it I like I hang out with you more than I do other random people um but i'm not sure if that yeah Yeah. right right um i'm not sure if that uh if we can draw the same conclusions just from from these sorts of studies but other people have documented this in in um rattlesnakes as well in uh, uh arizona black rattlesnakes hanging out preferentially um in certain groups that they're uh, at their dens, which I think is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, too. I think there's a, a paper, uh, I think Harry Green is one of the co-authors on from, oh gosh, maybe more than a decade ago with, with this sort of behavior documented. Uh, right. One of the things, since these snakes tend to, number one, they, they have other snakes that they probably hang out with, and then they also prefer to hang out with more than one snake, uh, groups of snakes, it got to me thinking, you know, th- th- these are garter snakes from Canada, um, which um, perhaps these are different than a, a garter, a set of garter snakes, say from, oh, I don't know, Illinois. Um, they, they may, there may be some advantage to hanging out in groups that comes with being a snake in a cold climate. Maybe that's part of the hanging out in larger group thing because, uh, what do they call that? Homeostasis, right? You want to try to keep your your temp your body temperature uh, elevated, especially when it's cold out, and it might be easier to do it in a mass of snakes as opposed to a, a, um, you know being by yourself. Right, and to be fair, they did um, hone in on this species and this group because they figured that sociality was more likely in these groups that are known to den together. And that's kind of why this work, it's uh, also been done in, in timber rattlesnakes as well. Um, and those are like um, like Arizona black rattlesnakes and um, uh, garter snakes are known for larger aggregations around these den sites. And so, yeah, in that sense, like maybe it's not surprising that um, to, to find something like this, um, but on the other hand, I mean, I guess it, it could be like every snake for themselves out there where like all the snakes just happen to find this one really nice rock and the aggregations there are totally random. But it seems like the snakes know, can recognize each other and at least understand that, okay, if there are more snakes here, I want to be there too. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I really do like to surmise and like try to get into the head of snakes, but it is, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure we know really why that is what the benefit is of these larger groups. Well, I think what the, what the, the experiment does do is it, it does take, like you say, there are, there are snake concentrators, uh, like areas where there's sun areas, where there's water areas, where there's food. Those are, concentrators and so it makes sense in nature for those animals to to congregate there but uh it's that playing field is sort of level everybody's well fed everybody's got access to water 
Uh, and then you also take out, because they're all related, um, you take out the novelty of the snakes hanging out with uh, a potential maid or somebody that just smells different uh, or has a different, uh, you know, uh, you know, just a, a, when you, when you smell them, when they smell them with their tongue, they just, they're, they're all, you know, they're different. Uh, so that might be uh, an attractor. So that kind of takes, that kind of levels that playing field out and still they find snakes aggregating together. Yeah, definitely. And I thought as well, um, it was interesting how they kind of looked at individual variation. And so what I am not a, um, a behavioral ecologist, so I'm just going to break a little taboo here and say, it seems like snakes have individual personalities. Um, and I think that that's defensible because snakes vary in how, um, they call them in, in their boldness as these authors defined it or their, um, sociality. And so they measured individual boldness as the amount of time that that individual spent away from a group and kind of leaving the shelter with a group and going out, venturing out on its own. And then sociality as the amount of time when they tested snakes individually, how often or how long that snake spent in the shelter that they had rubbed um, the oil of garter snake shed in. So in the scent of conspecifics and the individuals that were more bold and uh, more social tended to uh, find and, and, uh, attached to or, or participate in these group dwellings more than, um, than others. And so they kind of put that forward as maybe some of the cues that individuals have that allow for sociality or kind of start these trends of aggregation. Um, oh, that's right. Which, which did, I thought was cool. The sociality thing was sort of a, it, it, it's a, another test, but within the same framework where they, they have two hide boxes a control hide box and then one where they had collected the uh, uh, lipid cells from shed snake skins and and, and um, um, coated the inside or something so that there's a, de- a definite um, uh, attractor there. Uh, right. And, of course, the, that, that hide box got more snakes coming to it than the control hide box. So – yeah, yeah. Right. So they're they're looking to see uh, is it a is it a uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, it's a chemical thing, and uh, that that's they're using chemical cues to help them. Uh, it's not a sight thing or or anything like that. It's definitely they're using those tongues for all they got. Exactly, and I think anyone yeah who's who's read up on Gordon Burkhardt's literature will will kind of know like snakes can definitely recognize conspecifics they can even recognize themselves as compared to other snakes and that's all based on these um these chemical cues that they're picking up in the air in their tongues and and these authors kind of corroborated that found that yeah snakes will will aggregate more in um hides that that have been scented to smell like garter snakes and, and there's individual variation in that. Some snakes will spend a lot of time in there and be really, really honed into that um, safe space or whatever you want to call it, that, that space that has been occupied by 
members of the same species and others will kind of go, they'll check it out and may spend some time elsewhere. So there's, there's variation in how strong that attraction is, which is interesting. Yeah. And, and that kind of, kind of plays into, you know, the, the, the work I've seen with some rattlesnakes where you have, you know, the, uh, female rattlesnakes that stay, you know, they stay close to where, you know, they, they hunt and feed close to where they, were born, where their den is, but that you have other, you have males that uh, kind of do the same, but you have other males that just kind of take off and they go a roving as it were. Uh, right. And, and there's a, there's probably a benefit to having some of your, some of your snakes behave that way because then you come in contact with uh, other snakes that maybe you're not related to. And uh, you know, you, you're the genetic, uh, the, the genes get spread around a little bit that way. Exactly. Yeah. If everyone stayed at their natal den or natal, even this, this also happens with um, frogs and salamanders that use these same vernal pools, like some proportion of the population, usually males will go out and wander and, and find other neighboring pools. And yeah, if everyone kept using the same den sites or the same, um, or I should say breeding areas or breeding ponds, then yeah, you would eventually start mating with kin after a while, and that's that's no good. And so you could see how natural selection would um, allow that that roving uh, behavior or variation in that trait to to persist. Yeah, I'm 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 willing to bet that's quite common in the animal kingdom. I I agree with you. Yeah, not so much in the plant kingdom because you it just takes too long to watch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh pollen going off and finding its own uh is is rare yeah. without the aid of other creatures as we talked about. Exactly. Um what yeah. what else do you take away from this paper? Uh not not necessarily that snakes are have best friends, uh, but they definitely have a reason or a uh, a propensity to to hang out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's one thing that I took away. And I think the um, and I think that's an important one. These like non-random associations are coming up again and again in snakes. Um, and they are not these automatons where it's every snake for themselves, um, but but probably do have this like rich, um, rich uh, pattern of interactions that we're really just beginning to kind of scratch the surface on. Um, particular, I, I would say that's true because snakes are dang hard to study and hard to get them. Uh, and then once you, once you do see these interactions happening, it can be hard to quantify them as well. Cause you don't know how they're related. You haven't followed them for years and years. It, this is really hard stuff to do. Um, but I think for me, this is just another kind of nail in that coffin of uh of snakes as automatons and again this technically this work has been going on for 40 years now uh the earliest paper that they cited was um one from 1982 where um again like laboratory observations of sociality in garter snakes but um but yeah, people like Gordon Burghardt have been doing this since the 1980s to just show that like snakes are complex and have like really complex social lives that that were were just now coming around to to understanding. And I think that was the main takeaway for me. 
pretty cool. Okay. Um, just to look at this from the 10,000-foot level, people who keep snakes, when they first start keeping snakes, they tend to, what's the word, anthropomorphize. There you go. There's a $10 word. Um, <laughs> anthropomorphize the snake. Oh, you know, this. he's happy. He likes me. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Um he likes to sit on my hand. Well, your hand's nice and warm. So, right. Uh, but there, there's some ten. There's some of that that happens, and you know, I understand it. It's it's one of those things. You, the snake responds in a certain way to you, and you kind of apply what you know <laughs> to the snake. There's that, but then there's the other side of this, and I call it the cold logic of science, uh, which basically strips away anything, or, or I should say, in the past has just stripped any. Uh, anything like that away from the animal. The animal strictly is instinctual. It responds to chemosensory sensory cues. It does not think. It does not. Right. Or even the worst part of this is the one, you know, oh, they don't feel pain. Oh, my gosh. Right. Uh, right. You know, so we, we've had that, which is, I would say, the opposite of the other end of the spectrum, uh, which is also not good in, in term in my mind. And uh, of course, we think about these things a lot more now than we used to. And one of the things that kind of kicked it off for me was a blue racer in Indiana that we encountered, or three of us, uh, and we encountered the snake and uh, took pictures of the snake. It was sort of in an open wooded area. And um, we let it go and, uh, you know, handled it for a little bit and put it on the ground because it's fun to watch them, you know, Go away. They zip. Right. So, right. Um, so, and we're sort of in a triangle sh around the snake, you know, snakes in the center and there's three of us in, around it at three different points. And the snake, when we let it go, came straight at me and just cruised. You know, we think you would think that the snake would try to find an opening where there wasn't anybody and go that way and just go. Right. But the snake chose a direction and the direction was right next to my leg and it went right by me it, and I turned around and watched it and it went behind a tree and it never came out. <laughs> I never saw it on the other side of the tree. So we walk over to the tree and on the other side of the tree is a little hole on the ground next, next to the, like a, a broken branch hole or something, you know, that brought it away. Yeah. Like a hole at the bottom of the tree. And I, and it just sort of floored me because I realized that snake knew where that hole was. He knew his orientation in relation to that hole. And so that yep. what I've come to understand about uh, snakes, at least snakes of a certain size, perhaps not tiny little ones, but uh, like a blind snake or something, but a snake, a racer or a rattlesnake or something, they're, they're crawling around with a map of their environment in their head. Uh, especially, I think maybe racers and coaches and things like that. They're sight hunters, and so they they kind of understand the landscape. They're not little robots. They they know their environment and they learn from their environment, and they, and they they can make decisions based on their knowledge of their environment. Which to me was like uh, I went, you know, it's like going from uh, snakes one hundred and one to graduate level <laughs> studies. <of snakes. laughs> wow. Oh, I never think of snakes the same way again now because of that experience. And sometimes that's totally. what it takes is these experiences in the field for you to 
And, and other people have plenty of these anecdotes where they go, oh, this snake, like the, the, I guess maybe the famous one is, is from Harry Green with the snake that had a fern in, its, in, in the way of its face and it just used its body to, to mash the fern down, you know, so that it had a, a, a clear field of view. I think. Right, right. Yeah, these are, these are not, uh, like I said, they're not little robots. Right, exactly. And I think the important thing there is, yeah, I, and I agree with you. Like when we think about these, obviously there's lots of um, uh, experiences in the field that that influence it. And then from like the, the scientific or behavioral ecology perspective of it, it doesn't make sense to fully put all of your human emotions onto this snake that will right. probably lead you astray it also doesn't make sense to just assume that if we can't do that then they're totally automatons and robots that are driven by external stimuluses stimuli only um but it's somewhere in the middle where like in order to understand the life of a snake we need to think like a snake and be influenced by more strongly by chemical cues and by um by by the needs and wants of a snake rather than the needs and wants of of a human or what we perceive that the snake might like and i think that often leads you to more insightful conclusions about the whys and the hows yeah and uh, you know i i think we're not by any stretch nobody's claiming that that snakes uh like we say have best friends or or anything like that or or are capable are 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 capable of complex thought and complex problem solving, but uh, they certainly uh, just just because they have a small brain doesn't m mean that they don't make a hundred percent use of it. And and I'm gonna push back a little bit there. Like I bet that they are capable of complex problem solving, um, and maybe they do have best friends that they like totally unrelated individuals that they hang out with over and over and over and over again. Um, I bet we just haven't looked or tested snakes in the right way uh, for that. Like, I don't think that they would be able to solve a jigsaw puzzle the way that we as sure. humans can solve a jigsaw puzzle. We would just need to think of a test that, um, that requires complex problem solving, but that you can do with no hands and no feet and 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 something that uh, that a snake could actually do. And I bet they're they're smarter than than we give them credit for. At least that is the impression that I get the more and more that I learn. And that that's always fun. OK, well, that wasn't too much of a pushback, but <laughs> sure, 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 so, sure. Yeah. You know, you need to work on a three dimensional maze and uh, yeah, run some. Right. There. Yeah, it would be really fun to think of something. Um, yeah, that a snake could do, like like pushing a button over here in order to open a door over there to get to the the rat smell or to the friend smell um, behind that door. Like there are probably there are probably tests, complex problem solving tests that snakes could solve. Um, and maybe I don't even know. Maybe it's already happened, and I don't know about them. But it won't surprise me when they do, because snakes are uh, snakes are way smarter than we often give them credit for. Well, it's kind of hard. Uh, it's easy to you know if you've got a um, a terrestrial 
animal that uh, doesn't climb, you, you can run it through a maze, right? But, but snakes yeah. use the X, Y, and Z coordinates. So it's kind of hard to run a snake through a maze. I'm sure there's a clever behavioral ecologist that has thought about this, but um, but yeah, I I would want to know more. Okay, well, I'm gonna keep my eye open for stuff like that. Cool. What else do you think? What else about this paper? Is there anything else that kind of grabs you? And I, yeah, I I think like the important takeaways we've kind of touched upon, like the why of this is not really understood. Like what benefit are they getting from being together? And I'm, I'm really curious about that. And then the other part um, is the fact that they, they tested this with juvenile snakes and they found that with larger snakes, a lot of these um, relations didn't really hold. And that could be because larger snakes know something that juveniles don't or, Maybe if there's some protective element of being in a group, the juveniles are more susceptible to danger and larger snakes aren't. Um, that's all unclear. Or it could be as simple as the hides were too small for the larger snakes to want to go and, and group up under them. But the ju- they were the right size for the juveniles, and so the juveniles did it. Um, I'd be curious to, to see um, studies like this done in the wild and really expanded in, in kind of scope and generality. So we could um, talk outside of just juvenile snakes in the lab. Right. It'd be, I was thinking uh, along the lines of taking, basically, you know, putting a cam in, uh, you know, overhead in some big den. Yep. And having, uh, using pattern recognition software to keep track of who's, who sits where and, and who, you know, how, how those things shake out. And, People are doing this. It is that is becoming more and more common. Um, I know Emily Taylor has a, a project like this with prairie rattlesnakes, where yeah. she's labeled the um, the rattles of the rattlesnakes with nail polish, so she can identify them as they come and go. I haven't heard any results or anything from no, that. That's but, a project um, rattle cam. Exactly. Exactly. Emily, you um, need to come on the show and, again and talk about project <laughs> rattle cam. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm sure she could uh she could talk for much longer than either of us about uh rattlesnake sociality and um and all all the latest research there. There is um studies like this are becoming easier and easier with uh these kinds of um remote and automated uh tracking cameras and uh and and trail cams that that are now available. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, these are good papers to talk about and, uh, a, a good, uh, uh, coming back after, gosh, darn it. Six months of, without, without any, uh, Herb Science Sunday. So I know uh, I'm, <laughs> I will, I will try to be better and, uh, and send more papers your way. So, so we can do this more regularly, well, but you're, you're I'm guy. glad to be back. You're a busy I, guy. Yeah. yeah. Things, things have, have ramped up in my life for yeah. sure. And so, um, so it can be hard, but yeah. I will, uh, we'll, we'll try to do this more regularly. I, I do want to bring this up and we, we did not come, we, we talked about this off, off the air. Uh, I do want to bring it up and we don't have a resolution for this yet, but I wanted just to, to end this with a, just a few minutes about a, an issue with nomenclature. <laughs> <laughs> Tax- okay. All right. Taxonomic yeah. nomenclature. Sure. And, uh, I had asked you a question about, uh, 
well, let let me let me back backpedal a little bit. When you have a species and then you have a, or a genus and a species, like um, Thamnophis sertalis, right? And sertalis is what we call the specific epithet. And uh, in many cases, if you name a snake, like like oh, let's say you name a, a Thamnophis uh, fitchy or fitchi, if you will, you can say e or i. I think if you're a Latin purist, you say e. But uh, true, Thamnophis fitchy, the i indicates that the species is named after a male or presumed male uh, worker in the field. So. Oh, right. I so, didn't know that. So I, I thought is named, yeah, go ahead. Fitchy is named after you know, Henry Fitch, famous herpetologist, right? So, right. But if you want to name uh, an animal honoring a female, it has the A-E suffix on the end of it, like Crotophytus dickersoni or dickersoni. I don't know how you pronounce A-E. You can pronounce it E or A. Uh, but Crotophytus Dickersoni, A-E on the end, honors Mary C. Dickerson, who was the first female curator of herpetology at the American Museum of Natural History back in the day. Very famous woman. She described a number of species. Um, one of those people you want to go back and meet in a time machine and have lunch with. But anyway, so there's, there's that. You describe it after a male, it's I. Describe it after a female worker, it's A-E. If you describe something such as, uh, uh, let's say, um, two workers, and let's say they happen to be married and their last name is Wright, like what Albert and Hazen, uh, uh, what was his wife's name? I can't remember. But what, uh, the, the typical one is uh, Storaria decayi Wrightorum. So you're, right. you're describing it after two people. It's Orum, O-R-U-M. Okay. There's also Hyla Wrightorum. Right. The, um, I mean, the yes. tree frog. Cool. Yeah. Hyloritorum. Uh, I just like Storaria decayi ritorum because it's actually honoring four different naturalists or herpetologists. Right. Yeah, that right. is. So yeah, you know we have yeah. uh, you know James Decay and uh, James Storer and then and then the right uh, the right. So, but anyway, uh, I think what what that's all kind of well and good. And then if you if you find an animal in a certain place and you discover it there and you want to honor the place, you use the the uh, the, the uh, suffix ensis, E-N-S-S-I-S, like tortugensis or, or, you know, so that's a sort of a place thing. But occasionally I see, uh, and this happens with the male honorific uh, with the eye, I'll see a single eye or I'll see two eyes. So it might be Taylor eye with an one eye, or it might be Taylor eye with two eyes. So what I right. haven't been able to figure out is what denotes one, a one eye versus two eyes on on the uh, specific epithet. We, I do not, uh, and this is what I told you before. I do not um, have a good answer for this. I was even wrong. You just taught me that the ending refers to the person that it describes rather than the genus. I Because in Latin, all, all nouns have uh, genders. And so I always thought that the specific epithet had to match the gender of the genus. But in fact, it's of the person that it describes, which I did not know. Um, and I bet we're going to have to get um, 
someone who actually describes new species on here to know about like the nuances of the nomenclature there. Um, Taminkai, so Macrochiles Taminkai, the alligator snapping turtle, is one of those with the double I yes. at the end. And yeah, I I do do not know why. No, I'm not sure who Tamink was. Uh, yeah, me neither. <laughs> I was just trying that. to look that up really quickly and cannot find it. Yeah, we don't know all these things, but uh, yeah. So I'm I'm really curious, and perhaps that is something to do with with Latin or perhaps Greek. I'm not sure. Uh, with some sort of um, some uh, language rule and maybe not actually anything to do with the taxonomy rule. It might be a language rule thing, which sometimes comes into play. Uh, True. You know, where we've seen uh, uh, like animals like Thamnophis sorita, the ribbon snake was Thamnophis sorritus. Uh, and right. there's a, a, an issue with a, a language rule issue, not a, taxonomy issue. Now it's it's corrected to Sarita. Same thing happened with uh, Lampropeltis getulus. Used to be getulus or getulus, if you will, however you pronounce it. Now it's it's getula, and that's the same thing. It's sort of been corrected, um, you know, throughout the the the, the mavens of taxonomy have corrected. Yeah, things, so. I think those are a gender agreement thing. Where like the I'm not sure which one is which, but Thamnophis is a masculine or feminine noun. And so they had to correct um, sorita to correct soritis to sorita. Yes. And yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure when it's named after a person, I'm going to, I'm going to start sending some messages and ask, and maybe we can get a taxonomist on the show yeah. to, to talk about what it's like to describe new species of herbs while field terping and all that. That's sort of the, this, you know, anybody who does any kind of field herp, that's just one of their secret fantasies is to find a new species and then. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. You know, name it after their famous, their favorite uh, Herp Science Sunday. <laughs> it'll, it'll come. It'll come. Thamnophis pingletoni is, it's on its way. We'll see. I was see. thinking of, uh, you know, Thamnophis crony with two eyes. <laughs> yeah just to just to confuse people with yeah. two eyes we'll see well anyway we may get an answer on that but if we don't get an answer we will find an answer absolutely yeah okay. well, all right it's been great talking to you again good to see you again um hopefully you have a great summer and uh we'll stay in touch and we'll come up with some other topic uh hopefully not six months away we'll see how it goes awesome we i'd love that great talking with you too mike yeah all right thanks again alex thank you bye-bye Hey there, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I want to say thank you once again to Dr. Alex Crone, not only for coming on the show, but for the whole concept of Herp Science Sunday. Uh, the So Much Pingle podcast would be so much poorer without it, I think. Uh, you're a busy guy, Alex, so I appreciate you making time for this, and I always enjoy talking with you, my friend. And uh, for those of you listening to the show, uh, feel free to suggest papers and topics for us to discuss. And if you've got a herb-related publication that you would like to promote and talk about, please get in touch. And always, thanks for listening, and uh, keep your eyes peeled for pollinating frogs.
That's it for episode 87. Thanks once again to Dr. Alex Krohn for coming on the show, and I am looking forward to our next chat whenever that is. And once again, I want to say thanks to all of the So Much Pinkle patrons who keep the show rolling on into the future. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help out, it's easy to do, and it costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can also join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. I say it every time, but I do like hearing from folks. I like to hear your thoughts and your opinions and your guest suggestions, whatever it is you got. So you can email me at so much pingle at gmail.com. And of course, so much pingle is all one word. And also please note that I am on Instagram and Mastodon now under the so much pingle handle. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>